The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. I'm going to read <clears throat> Acts 12, 1 through 19. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And this quick end... The angels, I'm sorry, lost my place. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Rat your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what, he was, being, what was being done was by an angel that was real, but he thought he was having a vision. When he had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate uh, leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. Immediately, the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went out to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran back and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But mentioning to him, to them, that with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was little, uh, no little disturbance amongst the soldiers over what became of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. 
Then he went down from Judea and Caesarea and spent time there. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Steve, and good morning, everybody. Uh, I will uh, start with the acknowledgement of a significant mystery about Christianity, and it's this. The more that outside forces have attempted to shut Christianity down, the more Christianity seems to grow. Uh, and if you read the Bible, if you look at history, it seems like the most advantageous position that Christians have been in over the course of history has been in the position of the underdog, because when his people are in the position of the underdog, it seems that that is when God does uh, his most remarkable work. Um, this is true in the present day as well. I just read an article the other day about uh, Albania. I don't know how much you know about Albania, but one thing about Albania is that it is identified as the world's first official atheist country. In the 1980s, it was made criminal to be a religious person in Albania. And so if you are caught making the sign of the cross, for instance, you will be put in jail for three years. If you are caught with a Bible in your possession, you will be put in jail for five years. That's present day. But there's significant precedent, as, as anybody who's read through the Bible understands, there's significant precedent for this uh, in both the Old and New Testaments. Uh, the people of God were slaves in Egypt under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. Most of the prophets, the, the, the books that they wrote that we now have in the Bible, uh, were written under the conditions of exile and slavery and various forms of oppression. Uh, David ascended to the throne after many years of being opposed and persecuted and, and having a bounty put over his head by his predecessor, King Saul. Uh, the Apostle Paul said to his peers, as Christians, we must endure many hardships in order to taste the kingdom of God. And so, so here we have, though in front of us today, a similar account with the Apostle Peter and We've got a conflict. There's always going to be conflict if you're, if you're following Christ uh, wholeheartedly. And, and Peter's conflict uh, in this instance was that Herod Antipas, who is described as a king with violent hands, that's how he's described by the passage. I'm, I'm sure you heard that. He had violent hands. He was no friend of Christianity, and he had a reputation for violence and a reputation for making his violence, especially toward people of faith, a public spectacle. And we read in the passage here that he has just put the apostle James to death. James was one of the 11 out of the 12 disciples who died as martyrs for their faith under leaders like Herod. Uh, and, and, and so when we're in this passage, we see that Peter is set now to be next uh, among those that Herod is going to execute. Herod's already put him in prison, and Peter is in prison awaiting his death. Uh, you know, passages like this bring, bring to my mind uh, a song. It's one of my favorite songs by a band I listen to a lot. Some of you may know this band. It's a band called Radiohead. They have a song called Karma Police, 
And one of the lyrics goes like this. This is what you get when you mess with us. This is what you get when you mess with us. And, and that was sort of the, the, the posture that, that Herod and his kind would assume with people who believed in God, and especially those who believed in Jesus. And so, so James is put to death, Peter is put in prison, all under Herod. So I'm going to ask for a show of hands really quick. How many of you know a person named Peter? Okay. How many of you know a person named James? Raise your hands. Okay. That's pretty much everybody in the room. How many of you know a person named Herod? I want to talk for the next few moments about why that's the case. Why, would, why are people now, 2,000 years later, naming their kids after the losers and not naming their kids after the, the presumed winner in this scripture? The ancient church father, Tertullian, helps us with the answer to that question. He said that the blood of the Christian martyrs has become the seed of the church. It's the conditions of hardship. It's the conditions of being the underdog where God has worked and births, birthed the most mighty works in the history of the world. I mean, we can, we can point to that even in our own experience as a church in the last couple of years. We, we've endured a pandemic for, for, for two years like everybody else around the world. During that time, God has planted a new congregation, which happened right in the middle of the pandemic, right as everything was in decline and going remote and, and all online and everything else. And, and we were able, by the kindness and mercy of God, to move forward with a, a plan to start a new church in North Nashville, which is now a thriving community of over 200 people every week called Christ Pres Koinonia. In the middle of the pandemic, the other, the other reality here, and, and this, is, this is a little bit less easy to see or to perceive, but if you add the online engagement for our four congregations at Christ Pres, we're actually reaching, when you add online and in-person people together, we're, each, we're reaching hundreds more people than we ever have every single week as a church. And so it will be very fun to see what that looks like after We've got the pandemic completely in the rear view, but right now we, we can even attest in our own experience that when outside forces threaten to shut the church down, God does stuff during those seasons. And so, so what I want to do is, is I want to be very kind to you again this week like I have for the last two sermons and give you just two points instead of three. But it's a little bit of a trick because the points are a little bit longer than they are in a three-point sermon. So it's Six, one, half dozen, the other. But um, the two points are the conflict we're in and then the power we possess. So, so let's start with the conflict. The Bible describes a cosmic conflict, and, and it does so in, in, in various ways in order to, to help us understand the conflict that we're all in even today. Good versus evil, flesh versus spirit, the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman, the kingdoms of the world versus the kingdoms of Christ. So John Stott, the great uh, Anglican minister and Bible scholar, put it this way. Here we see two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each one wielding an appropriate weapon. On one side is the power of King Herod, which is the power of the sword and the security of the prison. On the other side of that conflict, the church turns 
to the only power which the powerless possess. The church turns to the only power which the powerless possess. So I'll I'll describe that power in a few minutes. But first, I want to make a few observations or a couple of observations from Luke and just how Luke, the author, operates. Luke is what you could call an investigative reporter extraordinaire from the New Testament era. If you, you read his gospel account, if you read the book of Acts, he wrote both of them. This is a sequel. Uh, the book of Acts is a sequel to the gospel according to Luke. He, he talks about how he went out of his way to take great pains to, to understand very carefully what, what happened in history and then to record it very carefully and very accurately. And he does so without editorializing, without opining. He just writes things down the way that the eyewitnesses said they happened. And a couple of, couple of principles emerge uh, in the writings of Luke that describe the Christian mindset. One is that when you're aligned with Christ and, and, and living in the awareness of who you are in the sight of God through Christ, there's no faking fine anymore, and there's no giving in to despair anymore. So, so first of all, there's no faking fine anymore when you're awakened to the person and work of Jesus Christ in and around your life. When you become a Christian, and it's, it's, it's demonstrated here through Peter, when you become a Christian, you, you gain this sudden access to an inner peace and an inner poise that is accessible in any circumstance. And we find Peter here in jail. He's in prison. He's awaiting his death. And what is he doing? Is he freaking out? Is he making sure he gets in his one phone call to his attorney to, 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 to make sure that that, that he's got somebody on the outside advocating and fighting for him. No, he's fast asleep. He's fast asleep. He's sleeping like a baby. Then you see a similar situation in the Apostle Paul and, and another man named Silas in another part of Acts where they're in prison in, uh, in, in, a, in a jail cell in Philippi. And it says that in prison, as they're under similar circumstances— anticipating their death while behind bars, uh, being, having been put there because of their faith in Christ, because of religious persecution, it says that they sing. They sing hymns that remind them of who God is and what God is like, and, and that to be in the position of the underdog is actually advantageous because God works in what we perceive to be upside-down ways. These two people, Peter and Paul, they're always in trouble. So like anybody that's ever told you if you become a Christian, your problems are going to go away. Don't listen to it. Like if you're, if you're here considering becoming a Christian, so thankful for that. I, I love that we have a church that invites their friends who don't have a church to church so that they can have something to talk about after they walk away and have lunch after church concerning Jesus. Here is one thing that is most certain. If you haven't given your life to Christ and you do, your life is likely to get harder, not easier. How's that for a sales pitch? But the the flip side of that is you can be honest about that now. You don't have to do the pie in the sky stuff. You don't need to do the happy clappy, sweep the hard things under the rug, fake fine, pretend things are well. You can actually name hardship for what it is. It's hard. And that's why Luke reports the difficulties objectively. And when I was in seminary, I I was part of this uh, group that went into the local prisons, and we would 
uh, interact with the inmates, talk to the inmates about the Bible. Uh, sometimes we would have worship service, and whenever we'd have worship service, uh, the singers, uh, the, the music team from different local churches w- would come in and lead in song. And, and there was one song, I'll, I'll never forget it because I hated it so much. The lyric went like this. Remember, you guys, we're in prison, prison, jail, some death row inmates in the room. In God's presence, our problems disappear. That was the lyric. There couldn't be anything more antithetical to life in Christ than that statement. Many hardships, not in spite of being a Christian, but because you are one. And in fact, that those, those men in, in that prison, and, and I just looked around the room thinking, the, the irony, as we sing these lyrics about how problems disappear when you, when you follow Christ, the truth of the matter is that the vast majority of the men in this prison are following Christ because of their problems and came to Christ through their problems and love Christ in their problems. No faking fine. Being a Christian frees you to be more boldly and explicitly honest than any other worldview or philosophy that you'll, you'll ever adopt. Because it's the one religion or philosophy that doesn't require you in any way, shape, or form to stuff stuff under the rug and pretend things are great when they're not. But along with that, there is no giving in to despair with Christ. You know, we all have our moments. We all have our, you know, seasons of anxiety and, and struggle and, and panic and freaking out. If I'm in a jail like Peter, I'm not sure that I'm responding in the same way. That, like, I, I have a hard time sleeping outside of jail right now. And, 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 and he's, you know, sleeping like, like a rock inside of jail. So we all have our moments, we all have our imperfections, we all have our weaknesses. But the thing that, that, that Peter has here is an awareness of the access he has to the one who controls it all. See, Peter's been formed a certain way. And we are formed by what, what, what we let in to our minds, to our hearts, uh, to our understanding of reality. And we, we can be formed by many things. We can be formed by, you know, daily monitoring our net worth that can form us in a certain way, you know, obsessing about what the stock market's doing. We can be formed by our chosen cable news channel and the worldview that's there. We can be formed by a certain academic path. We can be formed by likes and follows or the lack thereof on social media. We can be formed by all kinds of things. Peter made sure he wasn't formed chiefly by any of those things. Peter made sure he was formed by the truth, by the Scripture. And this is what enables a man to sleep deeply in prison awaiting his death. He's formed by promises that the best days for a believer are always ahead of you and never behind you. The very best days are always future, no matter where things are, are, are happening now. Which is probably why Spurgeon, the late you know, prince of preacher, Charles, preachers Charles Haddon Spurgeon, once said that a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. So I have a real-time friendship 
This happens to be a, a man in our church who, for whom 2021 was a year of immeasurable, incalculable loss. Hit after hit after hit, disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And, you know, we would get together and have conversations on a, on a regular basis. There's a group of about seven of us where we'd, we'd you know, connect on these things. And we really, you know, tried to be present for, for this particular friend who had such a horrendous year. But what, what I started to notice over time was the way that he ended all of his text messages almost with the words, we live in hope. You know, he described some devastating news that he had just received, and then he'd finish with, we live in hope. Not far from Peter. You know, my mentor uh, from New York, Tim Keller, has, as many people know who know who he is, been diagnosed with an incurable cancer. And, and it's also a fast-acting cancer. And I, I had the privilege of, of getting to have a conversation with him over the phone about a month ago, and part of that conversation, I asked him how he's doing. And he's been quarantined for over two years, barely left, you know, their New York apartment. His wife has been dealing with chronic illness for roughly 30 years now as well. And so much of life has been stripped away from them. And you know what his answer was to the how are you doing question? We're happier than we've ever been. We're happier than we've ever been. Why? Because they've been formed. We're talking about somebody who prays through the book of the Psalms once a month and somebody who reads through the whole Bible once a year and has been doing both of those things for over 60 years now. We are what we take in. We are what we ask and invite to form us. The conflict we're in, and that brings us secondly to the power we possess. What's the secret for somebody like my friend who had a devastating year last year, for somebody like Tim Keller, for somebody like Peter who can sleep deeply, for somebody like Paul who can sing loudly and hopefully in prison while awaiting his own death? Psalm 20, verse 7. This is David, not from a prison, not from a place of being persecuted and mistreated, but David after winning. He has just won a huge, epic battle, you know, which would have been an occasion for, for Herod to run out into the public square and boast in his own bravado, boast in his own might, boast in his own greatness and glory. And what does David do instead? He writes these words. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Any win that comes my way, it's not my win, it's his win. And any loss that comes my way, it's not a loss because he's always winning. He always knows what he's up to. Just like the parents are winning when, when, when they're holding their child down on the nurse's table to get that, that shot, right, at age two. And the child's like, you're betraying me. I thought we were together. I thought you loved me and you're holding me down so that strange lady or that strange man can stick a needle in my arm. Who are you anymore? And the only difference between the parent and the child is the wisdom gap. If that child were able to know and to see everything that the parent's able to know and see, that child would understand, this is not to damage me, but to heal me and potentially to save me, to give me long-term life and flourishing. And I, I can't even see it, but that's what's going on here. 
Peter has that awareness because he knows who God is. And he knows that God works all things together, the good and the bad and the ugly and the beautiful, for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so here's the power. The power is not in Peter's faith. The power is not in the prayers of these Christians gathered in Mary's home. The power is the power of access that believers have to the God who has and who is all power. You know, back to the quote from John Stott, where he says, the church turned to the only power which the powerless possess. What was that power? Well, let's talk about power from Herod's perspective. Herod is playing the Darwinian game. Survival of the fittest, kill or be killed, the strong eat the weak. It's, it's a worldview built on bravado and strength and not the long view. So some of you are you know, leaders and, and you know, business people, and you, you've probably come across, if you are, a book by Simon Sinek called The Infinite Game. Has anybody come across that book? So highly recommend it, not only for the um, wise organizational principles that it sets forth, but, but for the way that it also connects into the life of faith. And I don't know where Simon Sinek's coming from, from a faith perspective, but it, but it certainly speaks to, to what Peter, what, what's going on with Peter here. Here's an excerpt from The Infinite Game. It says, most people play a finite game, like Herod, where the focus is competition and the priority is to win, to be on top. But a small few play the infinite game where the focus is on values and the priority is to contribute to something bigger than yourself that leaves the world better, that outlasts you. That's a great vision. You know, players of what Sinek calls the infinite game, their goal is to keep the game going as opposed to winning it and calling it quits. It's just to stay in the game. And their goal is to contribute to something meaningful that they put out into the world that outlasts them. So here we are in 2022, well over 2,000 years later, after this Peter event, and here we are at a church in Nashville, Tennessee, at the ends of the earth that Jesus talked about, being influenced by Peter and not by Herod. Some of the things that have happened from the influence of the life of the likes of Peter and the likes of Paul, both of whom died as Christian martyrs in the first century AD, at our church alone. Marriages have been healed here. Orphans have been adopted into permanent families through the life and ministry of this community. People with anxiety and depression have received the care and the love and the support that they've needed through those seasons. People who have been addicted to sex and or to substance have received healing from the life and ministry and contributions of this community. People who experience disability and special needs and, and, and their families have been ministered to uh, by people who have, have seen it as their calling to be partners with these families in the raising of these precious image bearers. Nonprofit ministries all over town and all over the country have received millions upon millions of dollars from this congregation over the years to do the good work that they're doing in their communities. People who have found, have found deep meaning in their work 
and discovered that, 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 that any creative or any restorative endeavor that you're part of in your place of work is just as much God's work as my work is. All this kind of stuff is just happening in one church out of the millions upon millions of churches that are all over the world. And that have existed throughout the centuries. Because somebody like Peter and somebody like Paul decided they're going to play the infinite, infinite game. Their goal is not to beat Herod. Their goal is not to get their guy in office. That's not their goal. Because they don't think short term. They think in terms of values and they think in terms of what and who will outlast them. And here we are. And here some other group of people will be when we're all gone 200 years from now speaking and learning and growing out of the same stuff from Peter's life and hopefully from yours and mine on some level. How do you stay hopeful and not cynical though? Because with all the good work that gets done, Peter still eventually died as a martyr. And Paul still eventually died as a martyr along with 11 of the 12 disciples. The only one who escaped was John who died on a remote island prison for his faith. From whence we have received the gospel according to John and the book of Revelation and first and second and third John. Again, more goodness, more truth, more beauty born out of ashes, given to us by the underdog through the power of God. Are you seeing a theme? Are you sensing a theme here? The way that God works. God does not work through suburban comfort. God works in the trenches, in the bloody places, in the messy places, in the disadvantaged places, in the hurting places most explicitly. Does that mean that God's not in the suburbs? No, it doesn't. God's everywhere. Every square inch belongs to him. You know, Jesus in, in one place says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In another place, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can have everything in the world and be poor in spirit. Read Ecclesiastes. You see a person who's got everything, and, and he knows that the only thing that will fill the ache in his heart is God. It's just harder to access when you have everything that Herod has to offer. When you, when, when you have access to Herod... It's harder to access the things that God is holding out freely to those who trust in him. But how does somebody like Peter learn to rest in peace before he dies? Before any epitaph is written, Peter is already resting in peace. Again, it's a formation question. I can only surmise that Peter might have had in the back or in the front of his mind a story from Daniel chapter 3. When King Nebuchadnezzar, a megalomaniac, a lot like Herod, issued an edict after building a statue in his own honor and said, everybody must worship my statue and you will have peace. In the same way that Caesar would say in Rome, as long as you bow to me, as long as I'm your first allegiance, you'll be at peace, right? It was kind of a fake peace that was built upon coercion. It's called the Pax Romana. You can read about it in your history books. It wasn't really peace. It was coerced. Okay, so Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were threatened by the king. They said, if you don't bow down and worship me, I'm going to throw you into a pit of fire. And they said, we, look, king, oh king, they spoke to him so respectfully, but they said, we will not bow down to your statue. Our allegiance is to a higher allegiance. We're playing the infinite game, not the finite one. Our goal isn't to win, but to be part of something that will outlast us. 
And even if you do throw if you do throw us in the fire, our God will rescue us. But then what do they say? Even if he doesn't, we'd rather burn in your furnace, loyal to him, than sell out and live for another 45 years in wealth and pleasure, bowing down to you. That's a short-term game. What do we do when we don't know what to do? These people, this small group of people are gathered together in the house of a woman named Mary, and what do they do? They pray. They're praying. And then a sequence unfolds. In light of their prayers, Peter is released miraculously from prison, and then, you keep reading, Herod dies, and then Paul's missionary career begins. And from that missionary career, we also get the book of Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon. Like, we get a lot from Paul. And it all started in this little gathering of people praying. You know, there's these narratives all over the place about how the church in America is, is in rapid decline. And, I, you know, I, it's not hard to argue with. But how do, you, how do you make sense of that when the church in India is growing at more rapid rates than it ever has? We who have everything cannot seem to grow the church. India, who has nothing. The churches are, are growing like crazy. So, so one of the missionaries that our church supports, uh, he, uh, Christ Pres supports, he's a, he's a, a church planting uh, leader in India, came and visited a couple of years ago, and I said, tell, tell me what's going on in your ministry. And he said, you know, with the resources that your church alone has given, um, we've seen about 150. And I said, 150 people converted to Christianity? That's amazing. He said, no, 150 new churches. 150 new churches. You know, back in seminary, I had a good friend who, who also was a native of India. His name was Yanadas. David Filson and Todd Teller would remember him. I remember asking Yanadas once, what, 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 do you, what would you say is the biggest difference between Christians in America and Christians in India? And he said, oh, that's so easy, and it, and it makes me so sad. Because in India, we build our whole lives around prayer. And in America, I have still yet to meet a Christian who builds his or her life around prayer. And it makes me very sad for my Christian brothers and my Christian sisters in America. Who's rich and who's poor in the end? You know, every significant revival, first, second, third great awakening, the Welsh revival, Protestant Reformation, all began with a small group of men, women, and children praying in a room. Every last one of them, without exception. And, you know, we look at these people and we say, well, well they're praying fervently. If only we had that kind of faith. But did you read the whole text? Did you listen to the whole text? They pray fervently. And then when this woman named Rhoda says, Peter's at the door, you guys. They didn't believe it. Do you know what Jesus' number one nickname was for his disciples? Oligopistoi. It's one Greek word that means little faith ones. You of little faith. And here we have a room full of people of little faith because when Rhoda says, Peter's at the door, you guys, I said, no. 
It's probably just his ghost. His ghost, you guys, it hasn't been long since Jesus showed up from the dead. Don't you think it's possible for, for, for God to bring Peter to us from jail? You remember the whole Thomas thing? I'm not going to believe unless we see. I see and touch him. And then Jesus said, see, touch. So God can bring Jesus from the dead, but not Peter to us from prison? And, that, and, and it said that, that they doubled down. They said, you're out of your mind. And it says that Rhoda keeps insisting. And then knock, knock, knock. Somebody else goes to the door. Oh, you guys, it's Peter. And, you know, Rhoda's back here saying, yeah. That's what I'm talking about, you guys. Little faith ones. Their prayers were fervent. But don't let it get lost on us that their prayers were also weak. They hardly believed what they were praying. And yet God still delivered fully to them what they were asking for because it's not the power of our faith, it's not the power of our prayers that ignite God to act. It's the power of the one to whom we pray with what Jesus called a mustard seed of faith, a small, little bitty, tiny, puny, faithless faith. Don't think that your little weak, puny prayers that you only half believe yourself can't do and aren't doing great things. There may be, there may be another thousand people in this room a thousand years from now because of a prayer that you prayed that you didn't even believe God would answer last weekend. Lord, build your church. Don't believe you will, but build it anyway. You never know. There's a certain man in this story who's easy to miss, but who mustn't be missed. Notice this little prayer meeting happens in the house of Mary. Mary is the mother, it says, of a young man named John Mark who is there watching the whole thing, experiencing probably quietly the whole thing. John Mark would grow up to be Peter's protege. And John Mark would also write the second gospel, the gospel according to Mark, where he would write in the 14th chapter about how the disciples, and especially Jesus himself, faced arrest, died at the hands of megalomaniac governing rulers. Even though he prayed earnestly, not with a weak faith, but with the greatest faith at Gethsemane. And now he invites us, he invites Peter, he invites the disciples to watch and pray with him, even now, knowing that we're going to fall asleep half the time, just like the disciples did, but that's not going to stop him from acting. Little faith ones. The message is to those who are of little faith, God can do great things with little bitty things because it's not the power of your faith, it's not the power of your prayers that ignite God into action. It's the power of God that ignites God into action. And one of the wonderful things that Jesus did with Peter and the rest of the disciples when he came back from the dead was he ate with them which is what we're about to do here in a moment as Pastor Filson comes forward to set the table for us. And I also want to invite, before I pray, uh, the elders and the deacons and deaconesses who are hosting tables. Now would be the time for you to come forward. The kids will be joining us soon 
And I'd like to lead us in a prayer as I close from the 27th Psalm, which is a Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. Let it be so, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.